On this edition of The Golf Guy, we talked to Scott Nye, Director of Golf at Marion, um, outside of Philadelphia. Uh, Marion, of course, is one of the great golf courses of the world, one of the true um, cathedrals of the game um, in the United States, and um, has a rich, rich history uh, on a lot of levels um, in terms of all the USGA championships that have been conducted there and are to be conducted there, um, as the USGA has recently announced. Um, and also just the whole Philadelphia area uh, with Pine Valley, Ronamink, and, and Marion and others is just such a, a great golfing community and um, uh, a lot of um, tremendous history in the game in around Philadelphia um, and, and in particularly at Marion. And, and Scott, as you'll hear, is... Um, just incredibly knowledgeable about uh, all of that history and, and, and really reveres it and, and Marion's place in uh, golf in the United States and, um, and, and the special place that it is in the membership, which is, you know, so well aware of that and has um, really embraced the role it has with the USGA with all the championships it's, it's had over the years. So upcoming um, uh, conversation with Scott Nye, Director of Golf at uh, Marion. So welcome to another edition of The Golf Guy. And uh, it is a great honor and pleasure today to be joined by the Director of Golf at one of uh, America's crown jewels of golf, Marion uh, Golf Club, Scott Nye, in, uh, right outside Philadelphia. Scott, thank you for making the time for us today. Looking forward to this. Yes, I am too, Larry. And thanks for what you're doing. Um, I, I really believe that you sharing stories, you know, about golf professionals that are in the trenches and you hear different stories and you learn, you know, a lot about these clubs and the, the history of the game in this country. I think it's, it's great um, that other people get to, to learn more about it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, lots to talk about with Marion, both the history of Marion, of course, all the USGA championships that have been conducted there, the ones that will be conducted there, recent announcements. But before we dive deep into Marion, just maybe to start with you briefly in terms of your introduction to the game, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I think we're talking about Ohio. Uh, you grew up in the College of Worcester, and of course, your dad's um, you know, taking over the golf program, and you um, getting your exposure to golf, I think that way, but maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got started. Well, um, sport was always a big part of my life because my father coached, um, the soccer team at the college of Worcester and the golf team. So I was always, um, exposed to a lot of kids that were playing sports that they were very passionate about. And maybe, maybe, um, young athletes that may not have been able to play at the D one level, but love sports so much. So I grew up, um, Many of them are really, really interested in academics and they were looking for that balance and looking to continue playing the sport. So growing up in the gym, watching basketball team play, um, watching my father's soccer team sitting on the sidelines. And then certainly all of his golfers um, being around them really was just gave me great exposure to the game. And, and they I was kind of like a little brother to all those players. I can imagine. Um, so um, 
you that was your first exposure to the game and then you you took it up and played in high school right and i think you ended up winning a state championship on that team and ended up going to college at worcester and with great success there as well yeah i was lucky we had a um a very small town of 25,000 people but the the culture that um existed in that little town for all of us to kind of have our space to go out and play golf and spend time with each other and talk about not just golf, but all the other stuff that young people talk about, but sometimes good and sometimes bad, but (laughs) it was a great environment because we could be on ourselves by ourselves and we could challenge each other to, you know, we were always having a little contest chipping and putting contest where we'd go out and play, you know, against each other on the golf course. So that was really a, a great training ground and a healthy training ground for learning how to compete and, and play to play your best golf. And then that transitioned out of high school. I was on a really good high school team. All five of my high school teammates played college golf. Oh, wow. On that state championship team, which is, I think, pretty unusual for a high school team to have that happen, especially yeah. in a small town like town I grew up in. But then that transitioned. I did decide to stay in town and play for my father. And I was working for a great golf professional at our local club and it was just a great environment at the time for me. And, you know, I really enjoyed trying to be a leader on the team. And, you know, I was lucky that I wasn't on sometimes playing for your dad as a coach could be very difficult, especially if you're on a cut line of being in or out of the lineup. Unfortunately, I was far enough along in my golf at that time that I was able to stay away from that edge. Um, And, if I remember right, division called Worcester Division Three, Division Three All American, so definitely away from the cut line. It's quite impressive. Um, curious, sort of as you sort of uh, you know were graduating college, um, what made you to decide to focus on being a golf pro um, as opposed to maybe trying to play golf for a living or or something else? What directed you in that direction? Yeah, I. I was very lucky because my, my father was a member of the Northern Ohio PGA. And as a kid, I got tremendous exposure to the best golf professionals in the state of Ohio. And, you know, whether we were going to watch the tour down at Muirfield Village or up at Firestone or out at Inverness, my father knew all of those golf professionals. And wow. to me, they, you know, they had the cool clothing and the, and the cool cars <laughs> and everybody liked them. Or didn't like him. <laughs> but no, I, I feel like I was very fortunate to have great exposure to guys like Don Pernay, Don Padgett, Jim Gehring down at Muirfield Village, and yeah. on and on, Herb Page at Kent State, just on and on and on, the guys in the Northern Ohio PGA, and even in the Southern Ohio PGA. And then as I kind of got to know some of the guys in Western Pennsylvania, like Bob Ford. Sure. You know, that those people I really looked up to and, you know, I, I wanted to be like them, as they say. <laughs> well, you know, I, understandably, I mean, Bob Ford, I think of Bob Ford in kind of the Quan Harmon category, you know, these incredible club pros who also were awfully good players. Um, and obviously Quan Harmon is probably the zenith of that at Wingfoot and Seminole and winning the Masters. But but um, that those are good role models to have, to be sure. So. Yeah, another um, quick thing there, yeah, Larry. Please, I, yes. One of our college trips down to Naples, uh, my sophomore year, my dad kind of was good at 
finding ways to get a small college onto a golf course somewhere in Florida on spring trip. So the one year we went to um, Marco Island and we met Gene Sarenson. Oh, right. He was there. That's right. Fire. He was there. Right. And then Ken Venturi had built a new golf course in Naples and he hosted our team and actually waited around until we finished and gave us um, strategy tips on playing competitive golf. Wow. We literally waited around for this small college, this group of kids that loved golf to come in. And we were in a, like a, a, as I remember a trailer because the clubhouse hadn't been built, but I don't know why he stayed the way he did that night. I mean, it, it was like 10 PM when we, when we left the parking lot. Wow. Incredible. That is incredible. What an experience. That's neat. Yeah. Um, that's really neat. Um, so, um, we get through college and you're going to head off um, and, and you've got a couple of different positions. I think you started at, um, it, it's amazing as I think back and think about this, the people you've kind of intersected with, you've already touched on a few, but Canoebrook in New Jersey, um, where I think you worked for Brian Morrison, who you know just retired Olympia Fields, you know, another obviously very well-known club in the United States. Um, but then you go to... Um, back to Ohio, um, I think the Trumbull Country Club, and who's one of the members, but one of the real great amateurs, Bob Lewis. Um, so talk to me about that and your experiences with him and some of the places you caddied for him at. Well, it was funny because I, I started um, teaching his mom golf lessons, right as, I, as soon as I got to the club. And I, I somehow became really um, somebody she wanted to take a lesson from, and we just used to have a blast. And, and Bob knew that. And when he would come back and be around on the weekends and stuff, he and I would go out and play holes at night because he was running a company called welded tubes. But for somebody at my age to have exposure to somebody that was playing golf at, you know, an amateur level at, you know, that level and playing on Walker cup teams right. and competing for, you know, you know, always being competitive in USGA events right. um, as an amateur it was really, really fun. But he was a blast to be around. And that friendship, um, you know, was very strong. And one of the years as he was getting ready to go down and play in the Masters, he asked me if I would like to go down and caddy for him. So we did that the first year, um, which was just amazing. Because the, the thing that was so neat about that and what I'll always remember is that the best players, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Byron Nelson, these guys totally embraced amateur golf and were so happy that Bob Jones had created this space for amateurs to play in the Masters tournament. Right. And, you know, it was really, really special because Bob was an older person to be playing on the Walker Cup team. Right, for sure. And, and you know, he, he played with some younger guys that have had – tremendous careers but Bob had um he was very very well known um in that arena and and people had a lot of respect for Bob and the way he went about playing and conducting himself as as an individual so again that exposure at a young age I'll always remember um we were playing a practice round at Augusta and 
he was Bob was playing with Jay Siegel, a great amateur from. I was going to say, as you've been talking about Bob, that's one of the names that's going through my head is an analogous one is Jay Siegel as career amateur. Like yeah, that. so it's yeah. funny now, so many years later that I've been in the Philadelphia section, I've really gotten to know Jay Siegel. But sure. back then, it was because of his friendship with Bob Lewis and their, you know, being teammates on the Walker Cup team. But anyway, what happened was Bob and Jay were on the eighth green. And Tom Watson was up in front of him on the ninth, or excuse me, they were on the seventh green. And Tom Watson and Byron Nelson were on the eighth tee. And the, the play was backing up in the practice round. And Tom Watson came walking back to the seventh green. And he asked Jay and Bob if they would like to join up and play oh, wow. the last 11 holes in with Tom Watson. And Byron Nelson at that time was just walking along. Yeah. But what was amazing was Byron Nelson, for those 11 holes, treated me like I was his grandson. Wow. Wow. And I'll never, ever forget, you know, how lucky I was to have been exposed to somebody like that. And he talked about his career and why he stopped playing and how much he wanted to have a farm. Right. But, it, you know, and then to be around Tom Watson, you can imagine graduating from college in 1985. That was, you know, when Watson hit the great shot to win at Pebble, it was right in that time frame, right? Right, right. So he was a right. top-notch player at that time. And the respect that he showed to Bob and Jay at that, that time was just something I'll never forget. That is really, really neat. Um, it's funny. There aren't, is in this day and age, um, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, Stewie Hogestad's the only one that off the top of my head comes to mind. Of course, he's in our neck of the woods out here in Southern California who, you know, plays at kind of that level and has played in a number of masters. And um, there's right. not as many, but there used to be more. Um, and certainly, you know, Bob Lewis and, and Jay Siegel are right at the top of the list is some of the great amateurs we've had. Yeah. And Nathan, <laughs> Nathan Smith in Western Pennsylvania has done really, really well, but I know what you're talking about. Um, there just aren't as many left as there were, you know, 25 to 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Because they turned professionals earlier, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so what an experience. So you 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 form your friendship with Bob Lewis at Trumbull. Then you go to Baltimore Country Club for a brief period of time. Then working for someone else who ends up going to Caves Valley. It's just amazing that connections you've had with these folks who have gone on to all these notable clubs. And but then you get your first head pro job at the country club of York. Um, so, and I know you've mentioned that the U S junior, uh, I guess when 1999 was there, um, and Fred Ridley, uh, chaired that event. I'm curious, of course, Fred now being chairman of the masters. So uh, what was that like? <laughs> so that, that was really neat because you could tell that Mr. Ridley was on his way up and through right. to, you know, doing some really great things in golf, but, what happened was um, something that he and I laugh about to this day. The night before the final, I had gone home because um, I was kind of the Pied Piper that week in a small town at a smaller coat trying to you know, host our first USGA championship. And yeah. Hunter Mahan and Camillo Vijegas were getting ready to play the finals. Oh, and at nine o'clock at night, yeah. I had gone home and gone to bed. And there was a huge hailstorm that came through and there were golf ball sized hail um, 
golf ball sized hail coming down and making pitch marks all over all the greens. Oh boy. So I get a call. My wife picks up the phone. This is before cell phones, right, right before cell phones. And it's Mr. Ridley on the phone. So she comes and she wakes me up and says, Scott, Scott, Mr. Ridley's on the phone. He needs to talk to you. So I, you know, I wake up and I start talking to me, tells me what had happened. And he was actually still up at the club because the USGA had a dinner that night at the club. And he said, we need to figure out what we're going to do, whether we're going to have to postpone this a day or we're going to try to play it. So I knew at the time that the um, Fox affiliate in that town went on the air at 1025 with their sports news. And then the three major networks went on at 1125. Okay. To do their sports broadcast. So I said to Mr. Ridley, I said, what do you think we do? What do you think if we do this? Let's call those sports stations and tell, tell them to go on the air and tell all the people, the spectators and the volunteers that are coming in to bring a kitchen fork the next morning in. <laughs> and when they get there, I'll get there early and I'll divide them all up and we'll just send them out. We'll have them repair those, all those pitch marks and then we'll run the rollers and cut the greens. So the two of us kind of devised the strategy and we wow, did it. How novel. And we, and we pulled it off <laughs> to this day. You know, we laugh about it when we see each other, but it's wow. one of those things that connects you in the game. Yeah. And I remember taking him to the airport. So he's going to fly back down to Tampa at the end. And I drove him at the end of the event down to BWI so he could catch his flight back to Tampa. And we were just talking the whole way. It's about an hour long drive down to BWI from York and, it was just a memory that the two of us share. And now look what he's done now. He became the president of the USGA and then on to this great role that he's played in doing so many wonderful things at Augusta National. He sure has. Boy, that is cool. What a that very clever idea. Uh, that's such creative. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard that before. Interesting, interesting way to circulate a lot of uh, ball repair uh, things as, a, as, a, as forks. That's, that's neat. So the other thing is, and, and, and I'll, I'll share this one person. Yeah. We were in a little bit of the farm country out yep. there. Yep. One individual brought a pitchfork. <laughs> <laughs> so I confiscated the pitchfork and I believe it's still up in the clubhouse. The oh, that's fantastic. That <laughs> that's hilarious. That's hilarious. I lo love it. Um, wow. So, so then, and, and you're what at this point, you know, as you get to Miriam in 2000, you're only 37 years old. And, and right. um, uh, talk to me kind of how that came about. I mean, you know, again, one, and we're going to get into Miriam in, in short order, but how did that op come to pass that, you know, as a, as a young guy, uh, you, you get such a tremendous position at a club like Miriam. So a real close friend of mine, Jim Muthing, he and I played, um, high school golf against each other. And then a little bit of college golf. He played for Miami university and they were in the mid American conference, but Jim became the head professional here and was here for four years and decided that he wanted to get out of the golf industry. Okay. And they asked him to name his replacement here at Marion. Wow. Okay. So Jim called me in July of 2000 and asked me, you know, if I wanted to be the pro at Marion. And he said, if you, if you get back to me in a week, call me in a week, talk to, sissy your wife and see what you guys think and if you want to do it it's going to be your job because he had already run it up the flagpole underneath before i knew it and the individuals that marion was talking to was wally uline at titleist oh sure yeah charlie roddenbush at 
Pine Valley, and Dennis Satisher at Caves. So those were the three people that the folks at Marion were talking to. And fortunately for me, they were all, you know, saying things that were positive. So I was very lucky and fortunate that way. But my dad being a New Englander always had a close tie to the Accushionate Company yep. and always sold their products as a golf professional. And that's where that, that particular tie came from. Interesting. So, Interesting. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I, it's funny because I'm kind of a traditionalist, as, as you might imagine, and I, I used to love Hogan clubs. That was what I always played. But when that, unfortunately, you know, uh, company went by the boards, I've been a Titleist. In fact, you know, the Titleist Performance Institute is not far from here down in Oceanside, and, and I always go down there, which is just fantastic. Uh, they make a great product, um, but uh, that, that's funny. So we're at Marion now. So let's talk a little bit about Marion and the history, start with the history of Marion. And I know how well you know all this. Um, and, um, you know, starting with, uh, you know, I knew it was 1896 because I see that logo. Uh, I just played golf with someone the other day who lives is at Wilmington Country Club and he had played at Marion. He had his Marion shirt with the with the wicker bass in the 1896. I've seen that logo a lot. So uh, but that was not the course we know as Marion today. That was the original course, right? That started with nine holes in 1896. Yeah, it actually opened as a five hole golf course. And then the next year, the the additional four holes to which comprised the, the first nine holes of golf at Marion. Um, opened up. So 1896, we go with five holes and then the next year, four holes, you know, add in. And then that nine hole course measured, um, 2833 from the tips <laughs> and, to, and to get to the first and to actually get to the first tree, first tee, you had to take a horse drawn stagecoach, and they'd ride you out. It was like a five minute ride for 15 cents to go out to get to the first tee. That's and then awesome. I love it. What was happening in, in this country and certainly in Philadelphia at that time period was golf was booming and, and the game was, you know, again, we, you know, like the country club started as something other than a golf course. We did For too. Sure. Right. Right. So here's another club where golf is being brought to this country by the Scottish professionals, you know, coming to this country and, and introducing the game here. So we had Willie Campbell come in and design that second nine on that original golf course. But it didn't last that long because, you know, by 1910, we were all eyes on building a championship golf course over here, the East course. So part of this, it sounds like in terms of, um, uh, you know, what caused some of the reason for expanding and, and, and moving to a, a, lot, a bigger course, the golf ball's changing right at this point in time. We're going from, God, I'm going to stretch my memory here. One point was the feathery, then we went to the gutta percha. And, and, but now we're talking about the Haskell ball, which is going a lot farther. So was that part of the mix here that we needed a little more land to sort of test people with the new ball? Yeah, so the new ball, the Haskell ball was actually designed in Akron, Ohio, which is very close to my hometown, right. by the BF Goodrich Company. Okay. Ironically, and I remember, you know, going by those, those plants as a kid going up through Akron. But anyway, that was the first solid core golf ball with windings on it, you know, thread wrapped around the solid core. And what it did was it allowed players to swing at it harder because you had greater control. 
So when, when you had greater control over the consistency of the ball, you could swing harder at it and faster and control it. So now that meant that club head speeds were going up and golf courses were, you know, being obsolete and it's certainly in Philadelphia. And I believe that New York and Boston were way ahead of Philadelphia in getting, you know, those new golf courses built, but there all the great players in Philadelphia went on this mission to build championship golf courses in this area. And that's why there are so many really, really cool golf courses in Philadelphia that came out of that era. Yeah, for sure. Um, So for Marion, um, we have Hugh Wilson, um, of course, who, uh, you know, as I understand, you know, pretty fair golfer, played golf at Princeton, but doesn't know anything about golf architecture in particular, you know, other than he's just a good golfer. Um, And he's kind of overseeing the new course. So we've, we've got lots of luminaries here at this point that get involved, right? Because, you know, starting with, you know, probably the numero uno luminary at the time, American golf, Charles Blair McDonald. Um, and he, among others, um, I know Robert Leslie, got the Leslie Cup now, got involved. But but uh, McDonald sort of says to you, Wilson, what we need to, he's consulting with him. But I guess, as I understand it, he kind of encourages him to go off on this voyage of discovery um, for what, six, seven months in England and Scotland. So if you want to really know golf course design, you got to go back there, right? So yeah, Hugh Wilson goes over there and sketches everything out and is just taking note of the game over there and what was making it so interesting to the players there and really started sketching all the holes and talking to people and learning more about the game. And then he came back with all his notes went into the field and then he started putting things together and CB McDonald would actually come down to Philadelphia um, and check in on the progress and just an amazing, you know, an amazing, amazing thing. And, you know, that relationship when Hugh Wilson was um, struggling with his health later in life, he actually became the guy that all the superintendents would send their agronomic practices to. And he, he's the guy behind the USGA green section. Really? Wow, that's cool. But it's just amazing how those great friendships um, that existed back then, what those people did for the game of golf. And you look at, you know, certainly on the East Coast, all that was going on, but then they took it West. Yep. You know, they're prodigies and, you know, it's just such a cool story what was going on with Tilly around writing in the local newspaper and updating the golfers as to what was happening at Philadelphia country club and what was happening at Aronimic golf club and at Huntington Valley. And they were all just, you know, really enthusiastic about it. And I, you know, even when Pine Valley was being put together, the idea was to stretch the golf season for the Philadelphians by going closer to the water. Right. And it's just an amazing story. And it just, it shows to me, and I hope that we never lose this. We as golfers have a cool thing that we love to share with each other. And and we like to help each other get better so that we can have these great experiences on all these wonderful venues throughout the the country. And I I just think it's really cool that Marion's been a, a part of that in so many different ways. Totally. Um, and, um, and there's a lot of, a couple of things I just want to talk about there, because you mentioned, mentioned Tillinghast and, 
Pine Valley course, George Crump. I mean, it's just in within Philadelphia. I mean, and you know, I guess it's people call the Philadelphia School of Golf Design. I mean, these, you know, Hugh Wilson, Tillinghast, George Crump, um, we'll add William Flynn to it, you know, and of course, of local interest for me out here, George Thomas. Right. Um, and, um, uh, you know, you've got, uh, uh, what is it, William Founds from across, the, across your state over in Oakmont. I mean, right. uh, so we'll add him, I don't know, he's, he's all the way across Pennsylvania. But I mean, you know, there's this, this confluence of people who were just so hugely um, in, influential um, in the d- classic designs of that golden era kind of you know, all from this group. I mean, I mean, there's obviously some others besides these like McKenzie, but I mean, this, this group that's all there in Philadelphia, it's amazing confluence, isn't it? It really is. It's really amazing. And, and you think about what land was available back then in the area that they could, you know, that was affordable land that they could go around and look and find what they thought was conducive to putting a golf course together. And it, it's just a, what I love about it so much is that they were all helping each other. Yeah. You know, they were sharing this, their passion for the game and they were trying to grow the game in the U S and build these great venues. And, you know, golf was a, you know, became a, a big part of high society. And when you became a member of one of these clubs, you had kind of hit the pinnacle, right? That was right. what you strive to, to right. get entrance into one of these, you know, fancy clubs. So really neat. Very neat. So, um, and we should add just to finish on the origins of the present Marion. So the East course, the championship course uh, that we all know as Marion um, is uh, 1912 finishes, but you, we also have, and people might not know this unless they're familiar with Marion. It's, it's not the only course that's part of Marion. There's the West course um, that uh, was then built um, uh, what a fairly close by, right? I mean, uh, you know, was it a mile or so? I actually haven't been to yeah. the property, but yeah, it's one mile away. And they used to have a little jitney that would take the golfers from here to the West Course. And the, the, the backdrops on the West Course were designed a lot of them you wanted to have like trees and things in the in the in behind the greens. So you were hitting with a backdrop, whereas on the east, you didn't necessarily have that. Got it. But they tried to, they called it building a golf course for the 99 and nine. So you were you know, just trying to catch all types of golfers. And I believe it was tee it forward a hundred years ahead of its time. Right. Right. And, and I, <laughs> right. And you know, they, 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 when they built it, they, they basically said, we're not going to spend a lot of money on course maintenance. This one won't be maintained to the level of the East. And they accepted that, but it was like a, the one mile jitney ride, you can imagine way back then. And you were kind of going, even though it was a mile away, you were kind of going out into the country to go play sure. the rest of it. Sure. And it was a, you know, a great day, 36 holes of golf. If you can imagine, you know, in 1914, when the East course, the East course having opened in 1912 was overcrowded from the beginning. Right. So we were pretty much forced to, build a second golf course to take the overflow. <laughs> it's, just, it's amazing how it all, you know, it is. And together. it is. And I love your analogy to the, or, you know, the, the sort of a preview of T it forward or ahead of its time in terms of T it forward, because, you know, I gather that um, 
you know, for people who are maybe, you know, starting out in the game or young, younger people who aren't as skilled, you know, that's a better place for them to start. And then as they become adults, they become more skilled golfers, go to the East. And then maybe, you know, as they become more senior and, you know, the East becomes, you know, a little much to handle, you know, they can go back to the West. And I mean, I, I, I'm imagining that because I'm more familiar, of course, out here with LA Country Club, where there's the North and the South. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I'm getting to the point where I've got a lot of my part. I've, you know, Paul, I, I was at Latham and Watkins. Paul Watkins was president of LA Country Club. So there's a lot of history between our firm and LA Country Club, even though I personally don't belong there. But a lot of the older fellows, you know, don't even touch the North course. I mean, they play the South course now. And um, but I can imagine maybe something similar, right? With, you know, in terms of some of the younger players or some of the more senior, maybe the West is a better fit, which is kind of the whole idea of tee it forward anyways, right? Exactly. Um, so, you know, you had um, kids that were maybe intimidated by the East course and not, not maybe, not just the golf course, the intimidation factor of the golf course, but also being in an adult world. Yeah. Um, and, and parents maybe didn't want their kids immersed in that adult world because, you know, the, the adults were doing what they do and playing golf and, you know, and the women here were playing and competing and they were serious about their golf. Right. So that West became a really cool place. The other thing that is really, really interesting about the West course is that a lot of people played high school golf matches there that didn't have access to Marion. Mm. So the West course was their place and they, a lot of the kids in the neighborhood became caddies at Marion and that was their golf course. That's, you know, that was the golf course that they could go play for free. And it's, it's so cool when they come back and they tell me about what it was like, you know, back in the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, right. You know, it was, it was really a, just a great escape, a place to just go and hang out. And I, and I am sure we have, we had fence members over the years that kind of just ended up playing there. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. (laughs) I can only imagine. I can, I could totally imagine that. But it was good for the game. Um, oh, for right? sure. Absolutely. So so that so we've got Miriam, we've got the West, we've got the Championship East, we've got all these wonderful architects in Philadelphia who've gone on sign a lot of other courses and I mean George Thomas out here with Riviera in LA. But um, so now it's up and running and an incredible history of USGA championships at Miriam. Um you know, if I was adding it up, right, and I may be a little off, I think there was 18, you know, I totaled through the U.S. Open right. in 2013. And I always laugh because from a distance, I always think you and Oakmont are always very close in terms of how many USGA championships you've had, the two Pennsylvania twins dominating it. Um, but you're usually a little bit ahead. But in any event, just sort of going back, I mean, and thinking of the of the history that was made there um, and um you know, you've probably seen this Joe guy quote, which um, uh, I, I love that I came across that Miriam is not Miriam is not great because history was made there. History was made there because Miriam was great, um, yeah. which I thought is a great quote from one of the great, you know, famous people in the USGA. But, um, you know, going back, we've got, um, you know, of, of, of those 18, I mean, some of the more notable ones, right? I mean, 
Bob Jones is kind of involved in those first three amateurs in one way or another. 1916, he's only the age of 14. I think that's his debut um, in the in the USG amateur that, that Chick Evans, um, I think, um, ended up winning. Um, and then, um, you know, he wins his first national title when it comes back eight years later in 24. And then, of course, you know, the, the one of the great sporting achievements of the 20th century. And I always loved that he closed it out at the 11th hole, which, you know, as someone who was young, that's the hole I've always read about for so long, you know, the babbling brook. And then he closes it out eight and seven to win the 1930 U.S. Amateur. So Bob Jones, certainly a big part of the club's history. Yeah, we're, we're um, we've really tried to embrace what he accomplished here. And we feel very fortunate that um, he came here in 1930, needing the fourth leg at the Grand Slam, which at the time was the United States Amateur Championship. But, you know, to have Chick Evans win here um, early on and what he did to go on, you know, as a student at Northwestern. Right. And, you know, he 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 you know, that was tough for him to stay in school at Northwestern and he wanted to do something for kids that weren't going to have access. And, you, you know, you look now and you see what's done with the Evans Trust. And it's just amazing. It that, is. Yeah. And, and to think he was here when Jones, he won and Jones was here as a 14 year old. And he actually putted off the sixth green on the West course into a stream. Oh, wow. One of the qualifying rounds. <laughs> we have this really cool hole on the West course. It's, we call it the hundred steps hole. It goes straight down a hill. And then after you hit your tee shot, you walk down these old, um, rickety stairs and you, it's a hundred steps down to the bottom of the stream and then you cross the stream and get up on this little green but it's it's the first green that kids hit in regulation at marion oh cool that's cool and it's a two-tier green and he just i guess it was burned out and he put it down towards the front of the green and went over the over wow. the edge of the green and down into the stream <laughs> wow 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 but then he comes back in you know 1930 and you know that was his last competitive yeah. tournament you know he did play in the masters but he never competed to my knowledge in the masters he played but i don't think he was he ever competed in the masters yeah that that that's my understanding as well and um uh maybe a good point just to talk about the tradition you guys have as you said you know i've i've seen the letters pictures of the letters about making him an honorary member and him writing back and, and um uh, and I've also seen the photos of this, uh, uh, is, is it sort of the Bob Jones day or uh, the march yeah, out to the, the 11th hole? It's called the Robert T. Jones Jr. Memorial Tournament. We do it okay. every year. And it's, it's either the last week of September or the first week in October based on where the PGA Tour is. Because what we do is we have, um, we play in either groups of six or eight and we play um, alternate shot it's pairings are made by the golf staff and you go out and you play um and you know like last year i think we played in eights so it's a lot of fun you can imagine eight players and four caddies yeah just that, you know it's an army going down the fairway right 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 exactly but then you come in and you shower and you get into a tuxedo and you if you can picture 160 men or 170 men in tuxedos walking out to the 11th hole, we go to the top of the hill at 11 and our club president does a champagne toast to Bob Jones and talks about, you know, the, the, the stuff that's so important in the game, 
being a gentleman, um, putting yourself third, putting others second, you know, in front of you and putting Marion first and the game first. And what, then we, then we return from the champagne toast and we come back into the clubhouse and we always have a guest speaker. Last year, Brad Faxon was here and talked oh, about wow. his early experience as a, an amateur player competing at Marion. Um, so we, we always, you know, we've had great speakers over the years and it's just a wonderful way um, for our members to connect with golfers that are in some way tied to Marion. Sometimes it's somebody that's written about the game, but it's, it's just our way to try to raise the golf IQ, which is already high here, I believe. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> try, to, try to help, try to help the, you know, with the golf IQ and just, you know, our people, the members here really love learning and hearing things. They, they love those inside the lodge conversations. <laughs> I, I'm sure. Um, and there's such a rich history to learn right. about. Um, and, and, you know, Bob Jones is certainly the core of it, although hardly the only one, right? Cause you I mean, you've got the 1950 U S open uh, where Ben Hogan um, you know, is coming off his, um, uh, I guess the car accident was February of 49. So probably not even 18 months later, we're talking about, and of course, back then, you know, and I think uh, you mentioned Ken Venturi, I think that they finally changed it after his win at Congressional, but, you know, through the 64 US Open that, that Ken Venturi won, 36 hole finale, which is really, you know, and Hogan's battered body from the car accident the year earlier. Um, and there's that iconic photo, um, which has got to be, that has to be about the most famous golf photo um, of his one iron into the 18th green. Um, and uh, to sort of get his par and playoff. But um, that's a tremendous, tremendous memory. Again, not just for Marion, but really in golf history has come back and, and, and winning the U.S. Open in 50. Well, High Peskin took that photograph. And right. High Peskin was the first staff photographer for Sports Illustrated magazine. Oh, wow. And he was known for taking what he called inside the action photographs. But the, the, the picture itself was actually featured in Life magazine. Right. I remember that. Yeah. So um, just really interesting, too. A lot of people don't realize in 1950, the U.S. Open, like you said, Larry, a second ago, was on Saturday, you played 36 holes. Right. And there was no repair after 54 holes. So you just kept playing. And Hogan got to the 13th tee and you know, said that it, he didn't think he could finish. And the caddy's famous words were, Mr. Hogan, I don't, I don't work for quitters. You need to keep going. And he had in the morning round on 18 had hit a six iron into the green. And then the afternoon he was between a forward and a one iron. And he decided to hit the low one iron to run it up through the valley in front of the green. He ran it up to 40 feet and then two putted to force a three-way playoff, which he came back and won on Sunday. But what a lot of people don't know which was a real interesting part of the story was that the state of Pennsylvania had blue laws at the time, which said a sporting competition couldn't begin until noon on Sundays because it was a religious day. Right. right. So that extra time that he was able to rejuvenate his body, I believe had a lot to do with the success that he had in Sunday. And, you know, winning in 1950 is what really kickstarted Hogan's great run to the player that, you know, those that love Hogan, that was, that was kind of a monumental 
moment when he did that at Marion on that Sunday. For sure. So really, and, really yeah. interesting stories. It, I never knew that, that. That's so cool. I had never known that nuance about it, about the starting time on Sunday because of the flu. That's very interesting. And absolutely was the kickstart. And, um, and then, um, again, you've got lots of other USGA championships interspersed here. But from my memory, and, and I remember this vividly, is, you know, we go to the 71 US Open and I remember reading about it because uh, leading up to the tournament, there is this worry that she is Miriam too short for today's pros. And, and Nicholas had sort of famously, I think in the world amateur in 60, it kind of blitzed it. Um, and, and I think he was like 268 or nine or something, but you know, a low 72 hole total. And I remember reading about how, oh, you know, gee, Jack's here and now he's at the height of his powers. He's 31 years old and, and what's going to happen here and everything. But, um, of course really held up well. Um, and no two sixty nines, um, were shot and, um, you know, for a while, I remember, you know, I thought Jim Simons, we might be finally getting, you know, an amateur to sort of take it, but he faded and we end up with, you know, the two greats, Trevino and Nicholas um, in an 18 hole playoff um, and, and Lee comes out on top, but, you know, talk about the cream rising to the top. I mean, the two best at that time, um, you know, battling it out, another fantastic US Open at Marion. Yeah, and what I, what I think is really neat, and I know this now, because I've, I've learned this from each of them just in the, the brief amount of time that I've been around them. But I know that Jack Nicholas helped, helped Lee Trevino a lot. Yeah. Um, talked about how to compete and how to play and, you know, was always there for Lee. And, you know, I, I think that's really cool. And it just speaks to the game again. You know, a lot of times these, these great, great players have so much mutual respect for each other. And, you know, that was certainly evident between the two of them and for them to have the playoff and for the, you know, Lee to goof around, you know, and, and with the rubber the snake. snake, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what's <laughs> funny is the um, Lee was running around that week. He had that snake in his bag and he also had a hatch because the, I don't know where he got this hatchet from one of the greens guys, but, the, the um, volunteers were wearing these like North Carolina blue pith helmets hmm. part of their volunteer uniform that week. And the rough was up really, really high. So he was like making jokes about the rough. Like he had to go in with his hatchet to, you know, like clear out the brush and the animals. And, you know, sure enough, that rubber snake comes flying out on the first tee right off the, you know, what we call the upper terrace, which is, you know, literally, you step off the upper terrace and you're landing on the first tee. Right. But it all just happened right in that little space that for the, anybody that's been to Marion has had a chance to try to hit one at lunchtime. There is, <laughs> it's just kind of neat that it happened right there. For sure. For sure. Um, so, um, and lots of, lots of other tournaments. I mean, David Graham's fantastic final round to win an 81. I mean, lots of, lots of great history there. Um, and, but we should mention, you know, besides all the illustrious USGA tournaments that have been there, and we'll get to sort of some of the ones that are upcoming, um, you've got a lot of sort of notable local and regional comp competitions, right? I mean, you've got the um, Bailey Cup, Carpenter Cup, Leslie Cup, a lot of active regional uh, things for the members and that to compete against different clubs. 
We do. We do. And um, the Golf Association of Philadelphia is a, a tremendous association for the amateur golfers in this area, the Women's Golf Association of Philadelphia and all the events that they do. Tomorrow we're hosting what's called the Barlow Cup, which is named after Nona Barlow. I've got 112 women that'll compete here tomorrow. Wow. Wow. But there's, there's just this rich history um, that exists here at Marion. And, and you know, it, it, it's been a lot of fun to be a part of. And the women's golf here is, is incredible. If you look back at the early history and the early championships at Marion and where that started. And then when Fred Austin came here as the golf professional, having learned under Ernest Jones, you know, he brought this theory of swing the club head and right. taught all the women up in the barn above right where I'm sitting right now um, in the wintertime. So he was, he had them hitting balls in the wintertime with the, you know, the old golf clubs and hitting into padded, you know, like, you know, gymnasium pads from right. yesterday. Right. They, were just, they were just hammer the balls into the wall and, you know, thump them into that wall. But he, he spent a lot of time with them in the wintertime up in the barn, which was not heated, but they would come in and he'd teach them the golf swing. And, you know, the history um, of women's golf at Mary is incredible. In fact, today there was a three-way playoff here in Philadelphia and Marion won for the 73rd time in the 125 year history. Wow. The women's golf association of Philadelphia. So it's just incredible history, but something really, really interesting happened today out there we have yes. our number one and two player that was the first time they had played for marion in the philadelphia cup and the seeing the youth and giving them a chance to come into this and to think about what they're going to experience in their lifetime now as young individuals playing and in, you know being um champions of the game and and really fostering younger women playing and, and girls playing golf. Um, it's really a cool thing. It sure is. And as long as we're talking about that topic, it makes me think of what's coming up next month uh, with the Curtis cup um, and um, uh, being out here and, and uh, you know, having gone to graduate school along with my wife at Stanford and um, you've got the Curtis Cup and, and the Stanford women's team, for those who aren't as familiar with it these days, is just a juggernaut. I mean, you've got, you know, uh, Rose, Rose Zhang, who uh, my friend Brady Riggs, who's a you know, top 100 teacher out here, likes to say is, you know, she, he views her as the best amateur man or woman in the world today. Um, and Rachel Hack and, of course, Megagani, who, you know, was so fabulous at the Olympic Club in the Women's Open last year, who's going to be, I think, joining, going to Stanford in the fall. But anyways, that's got to be kind of neat to have them come out next month to tackle Miriam uh, in the Curtis Cup. Well, it is. And, and the, the most important thing about the Curtis Cup is that, you know, we, you know, the Walker Cup and the Curtis Cup, you know, it's all about the allies, right? And what we believe in and the democracy and all of this. And yeah, it's, it's really, really important that we come together and we, we get together and celebrate the game of golf and celebrate, you know, what we believe in. And that's the most important thing. And then certainly the competition is paramount and people want to win. But both teams, you know, had several, not all of their players, but a lot of their players in for a practice round a couple of weeks ago. And Rose birdied seven of the first 15 at Marin. <laughs> so, amazing. That's amazing. 
Yeah, incredible. <laughs> but the 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 elegance of what I saw on the golf course, the, the purity of it, they were having a blast with each other as they as the GBNI team practiced and as the, the US team practiced, but the quality of play um, is just outstanding. And for Philadelphians to come over and get, you know, we'll call it inside the action. Yeah. Proximity to, to these players is, is just going to be fabulous. We saw it in the Walker cup and, you know, we won't have ropes behind the players and stuff like that. And they'll be able to get up close and see how, how talented these players are. Totally agree. And I, you know, I just, and, and, as the the uh, LA Country Club had the Walker Cup a few years ago, with what in retrospect was an incredible team. You think about who back was on it was Colin Markawi. Just go down the list, but I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. Walking with those folks, I went over there, um, and uh, it was just awesome to see. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to touch on because um, uh, I, I kind of skipped over when I went to the Curtis Cup, but just kind of think of this chronologically is uh, someone who is such a big name, of course, in golf um, and uh, architecture. And we're, we're on the cusp of playing at Southern Hills for the PGA. So he's gotten a lot of conversation the last week about what he's done there. And of course, he touched up LA Country Club. And of course, I'm talking about Gil Hans, who, um, you know, is just uh, uh, the guy these days in terms of restoration. I mean, he's certainly done original courses too, but particularly restoration work for for classics, um, worked at the country club, your, your friend, Brendan Walsh is, you know, there, you know, we got the U S right. open coming up. Um, he's going to tackle Yale. I mean, go on and on and on. But, um, one of the places he's worked on was Marion, um, back, I guess, what, probably around 2018 ish or something around that thing. So right. talk to me. So you had a front row seat at that. I mean, I know Gil, you know, makes his home in the Philadelphia area. You, you know him, but what was that like? And, and, um, you know, it's, I always feel, and I've never talked to him about this, but I always feel it's got to be kind of, I would be intimidated, you know, touching one of these masterpieces and making sure I made it, you know, didn't mess it up and everything. Obviously he doesn't do that. He's fantastic. But what was it like watching him work? What did he try to accomplish? And, you know, cause you're there for the before and after and, and you would have a good view of that. Well, you know, we, we did a really good job with our committee in trying to establish the guiding principles. And we have this great article that we use that was written by Alan Wilson, Hugh Wilson's brother, to kind of summarize what they were trying to do. And I, and I really believe that Gil, having learned under Bill Kittleman, the longtime golf professional here, mm -hmm. was one of Gil's and still is one of his very best friends and mentors. But I believe Gil has just this unique ability to, he certainly is phenomenal on the golf course, but he's just as good when he interacts with people mm -hmm. and, and tells people what he's going to do and why he's just a um, remarkable, you know, he's really thoughtful in what he says and how he conducts himself. Um, he listens to people. And then when he needs to do what he needs to do, he can do that. But, you know, it was really, really scary when that first shovel went into the ninth green on the East Because <laughs> you're messing with the Mona Lisa, right? Right, exactly. They're perfectly and, said, exactly. And everybody's saying, well, we'll never get the greens back. We're going to lose the, all the great little contours here and there. And 
We didn't do that because they were they had figured out a way to restore the contours to within the thickness of a nickel. Mm. But Gill's Gill's understanding of this property and understand his understanding of the angles and the greatness of the architecture, it was just so enlightening to walk along and to watch. And then to see Jim Wagner get on, you know, the equipment and to start sculpting and scratching around and doing, you know, the way he does things, you know, those two, it's what a tandem they are. Yeah. You know, and then you got to, you know, you got Gil, you know, he throws the headphones on with the Grateful Dead and you got Jim you know, <laughs> tearing into bunkers and not afraid of anything, but they're just awesome people and, and so good at what they do. But I really believe that, you know, somebody the other day played here and they, they, they hadn't played here. They played in the USGA's media day. Okay. And it was a local person that had done a lot of writing in the newspapers here. And I said, well, what did you notice? And he said, well, not much has changed, which is probably the exact answer that we wanted. Right. You know, how could we preserve, but update it so that it had phenomenal drainage and we had the precision air underneath that allowed us to, you know, play golf and foul weather. And, you know, if we get a rainstorm, we know that we can manage these greens and host a championship, but for everyday play, it's, it's just fabulous what was done, but I can't say enough about Gil and first and foremost, his talent and his eye for greatness, but then also how he treats people and how he works with people is, you know, just amazing. That's awesome. Um, and totally consistent with what people out here have told me at LA, you know, where he worked as well. So I'm not surprised to hear it, but that, that is awesome. Um, and now as we look forward, um, got a lot of notable championships coming up. We mentioned the Curtis cup. We've got, um, a lot of, a lot of anniversaries. We've got 2026, which is 250 years, uh, from our country's founding in Philadelphia. Um, and befitting that, um, I think Aronimink has the PGA and you guys will have the U S amateur. Um, and then of course, you know, another big anniversary, 2030, um, for the hundredth anniversary of the slam getting clinched there, you've got the U S open, um, and you've got more, I think it goes all the way out to 2050, but those I think are some of the notable ones coming up. And I'm sure you guys are excited about all that stuff coming up. Well, I think, I think, um, we, we were trying to get to 2030 U S open. And then we learned that there was going to be something more than that. We were kind of asked, you know, what else would you like to have? Give us kind of what you think. So what's important when you, when you, you have the opportunity to do that is you think of the cadence of the club. And, you know, if you're having a USGA event every four years, is that too much strain on the membership to pull it together and to run it to the level that you need to run it? And what, is, what happens with the disruption? But the great thing about it here is when people join Marion, they know that in our DNA is championship golf. So they kind of know what they're, you know, what, what's going to happen here. But I think that the board of governors at Marion Golf Club um, for, for a long, long time, and certainly in the last several years, has just done a great job of, you know, trying to do everything possible to share this club with the great players of the world. And I think we're really, really proud and excited that 
people want to win where the legends have won. Yeah. They want to get their title at one of the cathedrals in this country. Yeah. And, and that, that is a really, really special thing to be part of. And, and, you know, when I walk away from Marion, I will feel grateful that I had an opportunity in some way to be a little bit of a part of that and to watch our club and our great governors do what they did to, you know, create that pathway for this club and its future members. And, you know, it's also really, really neat with the, the sequence of the 05 Amateur, the 09 Walker Cup and the 13 US Open. I really, really believe that the younger people that grew up in our junior program here now really, really embrace this. And it's, a, you know, Marion is such an important part of their lives and, and, and they, they just want it to be really special. And I just feel like, you know, it's so, it's so nice to know that, you know, for future generations, we're going to be able to pass something along to them that they can really enjoy. I totally agree. And, and I mean, you touched on a lot there, which all of which I agree with, but it, it's, it is, um, you and I talked about this a little bit the other day. It, it is um, the case that I think there's a more of a trend with the U S open to go back to almost something uh, or go to, I should say something akin to the Rota that the uh, British open has. And I, I know that, you know, the USGA has heard this from the tour players. And, um, uh, and I think a lot of it is what you just said. I mean, you know, there are these, you know, iconic cathedrals of golf, um, Miriam obviously being one of them. And I think it's neat to sort of, you know, kind of, you know, sort of um, kind of gather around those, you know, whatever it ends up being a half dozen, six, eight, 10, whatever. I mean, those, those real cathedrals like Oakmont and you guys and, um, pebble to some extent out here um and and because that's where history has been made um and no place has a richer history than marion so i mean to be thinking you know gosh i'm i'm trancing the grounds here in the u.s open where trevino beat nicholas where hogan came back from his accident where bobby jones clinched the grand slam i mean history doesn't get any richer than that in our game well we're lucky um that our founders set out to do this. And when they moved from the Haverford course, the one that opened in 1896 that we talked about earlier, yeah, they set out with this goal and objective to build a championship golf course that would also be enjoyable for everyday play. And that, you know, that was the rara avis, the rare bird. And they certainly succeeded in, you know, the, the, the outing players that were here today supporting the Curtis cup. We had 96 players for that today. Wow. I know wow. they're walking in off the golf course and I know they may not have played well <laughs> because it's hard out there. Maybe they did, but I will say when they come in, they will have had a good day and a good time. And, you know, they feel it when they walk, you know, walk by the 11th tee and they see the plaque to Jones. And sure. when they walk by you know, Hogan's black on 18, right. They feel it. And, you know, that's a good thing because they're going to go back to their clubs and they're going to treat people the right way and try to share the game with them. And, you know, if we can do that, you know, golf is going to continue to be the game that we all know and love. Totally. And that is very well said. Um, uh, what a great history. Hey, this has been, um, 
a lot of fun for me, Scott. I mean, this is, I mean, you have such a jewel there and you, and you, and I know you feel this way and know that. And, but, but the, the, the sweep of history that you have at your fingertips about Marion and golf is really uh, both impressive and fun to talk about. So I, I very much appreciate you making the time. This has been awesome. Okay, Larry, thank you so much. And thank you for what you're doing. I really believe that, you know, if, if, you know, some of our, your listeners hear these things and learn about it, that they'll become intrigued by it and want to read about it and learn more about the history of the game, because in the end, we need those people to protect the, the great aspects of the game. I couldn't agree more. Appreciate it. Thank you, okay. sir.